A few days after the U.S. Supreme Court overturns Roe v. Wade, people await what will happen in Florida. Hello and welcome to Sundial on WLRN. I'm Luis Hernandez. This week, a new law is supposed to go into effect in Florida. It bans abortions after 15 weeks. But that's being challenged in court. And now that the country's highest court has given states more authority, well, what's going to happen with Florida leaders? Also, the Catholic Church is adamant that abortion is murder. A recent poll shows a majority of Catholic believers don't agree and support at least some abortion access. We'll speak with Archbishop Thomas Wenske about those nuances. Finally, tens of thousands of children in Florida are experiencing homelessness. We'll meet the founder of a nonprofit working to get these kids new underwear. All of that today on Sundial after the news. The program is made possible in part by support from Miami Cancer Institute. Hello and welcome to Sundial on WLRN. I'm Luis Hernandez. Thank you so much for joining us. Friday's U.S. Supreme Court decision to overturn Roe v. Wade doesn't just overturn one case. It overturns the constitutional right to abortion. This comes after a draft of the decision was leaked back in May. We once again turn to University of Miami law professor Caroline Malik Corbin to help us understand the legal side of how this impacts Floridians. Malik Corbin is focused on advanced topics in reproductive rights. Caroline, thank you so much for joining us again today. Thank you for having me. We spoke with you back in May when the draft of this decision was leaked uh, from the Supreme Court. What was your reaction on Friday when the official decision was released? And were you surprised that it was very similar to the leaked draft? The draft was almost the same except for some responses to the dissent. And um, my heart sank when I read it because it's an appalling decision, both for the consequences it will have for the women in this country, but also to what it does to the rule of law and the Supreme Court's reputation. The court at the time was looking at a case in Mississippi, I believe, and when this when this decision finally came through, in your opinion and experience, did the court need to overturn Roe v. Wade to decide on that specific case? Why did they go there? So the Chief Justice Roberts, in a concurrence, did not believe it was, strictly speaking, necessary to address the constitutionality of abortion because the specific question before the court was whether a law that banned abortion at 15 weeks violated the Constitution. And so it was certainly possible for the court to say a law that bans abortion at 15 weeks does not violate the Constitution and leave open the question of whether any regulations of abortion violated the Constitution. So it was possible to write an opinion that did not completely eliminate protection for uh, Caroline do I still have you there yes okay. did you hear me yeah no no it did come through at the end it just clicked okay, uh, okay. Uh, you know what I mean uh, just I kind of want to continue on that thought there because I want you to just help me understand the, the the legal argument for how the court justified this decision what what went into it so according to the court, so what, what we're dealing with is a fundamental right. 
And so the Supreme Court said there are two types of fundamental rights that are protected by the Constitution. Either the right is explicitly listed in the Constitution, and if it's not explicitly listed, it has to be deeply rooted in our nation's history or traditions. So as far as the court is concerned, unless we can trace this right back through the generations and that the right can be considered deeply rooted in our nation's history and traditions, it's not protected by the Constitution. And according to the Supreme Court's view of history, the right to abortion is not deeply in our nation's history and tradition. All right. I want to stop for just a moment, Caroline. I do apologize. There's a little bit of a, a glitch in the connection that we have. Hang tight, because we're just going to call you right back. We're going to we'll do this over phone. It might be a little bit more clear. Um, again, I'm talking with Caroline Malacorbin. She's a professor at the University of Miami School of Law, teaching U.S. constitutional law and and advanced topics in reproductive rights. Uh, we're talking about the legal implications in Florida now that the U.S. Supreme Court overturned the landmark case Roe v. Wade. And you can find more of the latest on this story on our social media at WLRN Sundial. I also want to mention, coming up here uh, a little later in the program, we're going to be talking with Archbishop Thomas Wenske of the Catholic Church in their position on, on this issue. But that's coming up after this. Um, I think, are we still trying to connect with her? or All right. Caroline, you still there? Okay. I'm trying to get through to you, but okay. oh wait, here here you are. Hang okay. On. All right. No, no, that's all right. So we're going to connect with you on phone here, and again, I do Hello. apologize um, because you know the connection is bad. So I want to make sure that we get this clear. And again, just to point out that you could follow all of our reporting uh, on this issue at wlrn.org. Okay. So Caroline, I think I have you now. You're loud yeah, and clear. I'm per- here. Perfect. Um, I wanted to ask you this: Can we anticipate? how the reversal of Roe will impact the future of abortion in Florida? Well, the court reasoning... Uh, wait, so so the court, by eliminating constitutional protection for abortion, has certainly made it easier for Florida to eliminate its own protection. But it's not quite that simple, because in addition to federal law, there is also state law. And the Florida's own constitution actually has an explicit right to privacy, and the Supreme Court has interpreted that right to privacy to protect abortion. So while Florida's own 15-week ban on abortion no longer violates the U.S. Constitution, it still violates the Florida Constitution, at least as the courts have interpreted it up to now. So after the decision, basically, a lot of different states, this became a state issue, and a lot of states... It became a state issue. Yeah, a lot of states started banning it. Um, And so the question, of course, with Florida is that we now have, going in this Friday, we have a 15-week ban that will go into effect. Um, But as you pointed out, the state constitution has an amendment that guarantees the right to privacy. And it was a 1989 uh, state Supreme Court rule that the privacy clause of that amendment covers the right to an abortion. I wanted to we, we heard from a Dr. Stephen Christie. He's a physician here in South Florida, also an attorney and a member of the Florida Bar. And he authored a book titled Speaking for the Unborn, 
And we asked him if he foresees that amendment in the Florida Constitution being challenged. Here's what he said. Well, in a word, yes. And that's the whole point of the Dobbs decision. Dobbs reminded every American of the actual role of the Supreme Court to tell us what rights we do have under the Constitution, not to tell us what rights we should have under the Constitution. Dobbs returns this controversial issue to the states where it's always belonged because the right to abortion is not found in the Constitution, neither explicitly nor implicitly. And we must be very clear, Dobbs didn't declare whether or not abortion is just or proper or legal or illegal. It simply improperly states that a right to abortion must be addressed by each state. Some states are going to restrict it, while others will fully endorse it until the moment before birth. And some states are going to ban it outright. So if Florida wants to to permit it, for example, to 15 weeks, which is going to be the laws of July 1st, then that's where its citizens have decided to cast their lot, at least for the time being. And if some citizens of Florida, like people like me, for instance, want more significant restrictions on abortion, then we're going to have to patiently and painstakingly make our case to our friends, our neighbors, our co-workers, and ultimately to our legislators so they can then change the law. So do I expect that that Florida Supreme Court decision or even the Florida Constitution to eventually be challenged? Yeah, I do. And that's precisely where and how the law should be addressed. All right, Caroline, I'm going to let you respond to that. Do you foresee that amendment in Florida's Constitution being challenged? Oh, absolutely. It's going to arise in the case. Um, There are already a couple of challenges to Florida's 15-week ban, and so no doubt that will provide an opportunity for the Florida Supreme Court to revisit the Florida Constitution's protections for abortion. So the answer is not it will be challenged. The answer is it has been challenged. It will go before the highest court in Florida. And but do you again responding to what he's saying again with uh, you know that that constitutional amendment that particular part of the Supreme Court ruling that privacy clause covers the right to abortion, do you also believe that will be challenged, that the whole amendment could be challenged? Absolutely. I mean, the, the, the reason, the, the argument that the challengers to the 15-week ban are making is that the 15-week ban violates the Florida's constitutional protection for abortion. That is the actual issue in both cases. And so the court will be necessarily interpreting that clause. Now, of course, the Florida Constitution is very different from the U.S. um, Constitution. And I think it can't be emphasized enough that Florida's Constitution explicitly says that everyone has a right to privacy. And at the time it was passed, it was well understood that right to privacy included the right to abortion, and indeed, that is how the Florida Supreme Court interpreted that provision. So under existing Florida law, it really is a very straightforward case. So the real question is whether the Florida Supreme Court is going to act like the U.S. Supreme Court and overrule precedent without a principal basis. And we keep mentioning the 15-week ban. Again, that's Florida's new ban on abortion, and it takes effect on Friday, this Friday. Uh, And that, as you said, it's being challenged in court. Um, And there was supposed to be a hearing today. What are you anticipating? Um, I I do not know uh, what the Florida courts are going to do. I think it very much depends on the judge that is hearing the case. 
and how emboldened they feel by having a more conservative court and how strongly they feel they ought to be following precedent as established by multiple Florida Supreme Court cases. I'm wondering how this topic is coming up in your classes. What are your law students asking you? Well, we're on summer break, so I don't have any students asking me this now. Oh, okay. All right. Well, I didn't know if you had but, summer classes, but all right. So when it comes, you know what, when you come back in in the fall, how are you going to approach this topic? Well, there are two, I mean, there are two major legal issues in this case. One is what fundamental rights does the U.S. Constitution protect? But the also major decision is when is it appropriate to overrule precedent. And one of the startling things about the Supreme Court's decision in Dobbs is not only its really narrow view of what counts as a fundamental right, but also the way that it deviated from accepted practices in when it was appropriate to overrule an earlier case. By the way, is that do you see that happen a lot overruling precedent? Well, again, precedent is overruled, but there are actually rules from when you should do it. And so the rules are things like has there been a major change in the facts that the earlier ruling doesn't make sense anymore? Or has the law slowly evolved in such a way that the earlier case no longer really makes sense? Or is the earlier rule, is the case's earlier, is the case's law really unworkable? Is it not possible to implement the rule that the court established in the earlier case? These are generally the accepted reasons for overruling a case, and none of those were present in Dobbs. And so that's what I mean when I said the Supreme Court did not follow its own rules for when it decides to overrule something or not. You know, because we talk about precedent, and, and there's this fear now uh, that uh, other precedents are now at risk. Access to contraception, even same-sex marriage. Do you see any legal concerns around other fears, those other fears? I, I think, unfortunately, those fears are very legitimate because of the way the Supreme Court decided what will be recognized as a fundamental right. And if the only thing that it's going to recognize are rights that are deeply rooted in our nation's history and tradition, well, then the right to contraception, according to its version of history, is probably not deeply rooted, and nor is same-sex marriage. So if it applies the same approach to fundamental rights as it did to abortion to other rights, then yes, those rights may well be in jeopardy. I want to come back to, again, Dr. Stephen Christie, a uh, doctor and attorney here in South Florida. Again, he authored the book, Speaking for the Unborn. We asked him how he believes that overturning Roe v. Wade will impact American society. Our nation has a long history of public outrage whenever rights have been extended to classes of people that have been previously considered undeserving or undesirable or inconvenient. Whether it's Americans losing the right to own other human beings or allowing women the right to vote or permitting black children to attend what had been all-white schools? Well, every time America made itself a more just nation, those who felt aggrieved responded with rioting and rage. Now, years later, it's hard to find anyone who's not ashamed of those who fought against such fundamental justice. And I think that's precisely the process we're entering now. 
Fundamental justice for the unborn is now finally in sight. And in many places, it's being met with rage and, and threats and violence. But it's just the exact reaction our nation witnessed when the subjugation of blacks or women or Jews or minorities was ending. Those are simply the last gasps of people attached by custom to grave injustice. So, Caroline, I'm going to take it to you and ask you the question, how do you believe overturning right. Roe v. Wade impacts society? Yeah, so I, I want to make a couple of points about that. And one is I find the comparison between um, Dobbs overruling Roe v. Wade and something like Brown versus Board of Education overruling Presley Ferguson to be a false analogy. And the cases that um, your guest listed, the court overruled previous case to expand individual rights. Brown v. Board of Education overruled a law that made an entire race second-class citizen. What we have today, or Friday, is a decision that overruled precedent that contracted individual rights and actually made half the population second-class. Now, I understand that his response is, yes, but that's not true, because we're protecting the rights of unborn, and that life begins at conception, and that the person is sold, is ensouled at that moment. But I cannot emphasize enough that this is a religious point of view about pregnancy, and one particular religious point of view. And if someone believes that they should not have an abortion, then they do not have to have an abortion. But not everybody shares that particular religious point of view. In fact, some religions require abortion. And so what the Supreme Court has done is plucked one particular religious viewpoint and read it into the Constitution. And that's really problematic to impose one viewpoint on everybody, including people who don't share that religious viewpoint. The prior regime allowed everyone to live their religious truth. People opposed to abortion did not have to get an abortion. The people whose religion requires abortion were allowed to get an abortion. That's no longer the case. Now the law reflects only, now the Constitution reflects one particular religious point of view. And again, this is a topic that we will be talking about quite a bit because as we mentioned before, Florida's new law goes into effect Friday. There is a hearing in court today. We'll keep an eye on it, and we will report on it as we hear. But again, I get this feeling we'll be talking about this for a while. Caroline, I always appreciate the time and the insight. I'm always happy to talk to you. Again, Caroline Malacorbin, professor at the University of Miami School of Law. Well, still to come, we're going to continue our conversation on the overturning of Roe v. Wade and the role of faith and religion. Welcome back to Sundial on WLRN. Let's continue our conversation on the Supreme Court decision and the battle over access to abortion. Religion plays a big role in this debate. Of course, people of faith and non-religious people can be found on both sides. Still, religion, in particular the Catholic Church, has been one of the forces pushing for more restrictions or an end to abortion. Joining me now is... Archbishop Thomas Wenske of the Miami Archdiocese. Archbishop Wenske, always a pleasure. Thank you so much. Good to be here. 
Where were you, where were you when you heard the news on Friday? I was in my office uh, working, and uh, I was very happy with the with the news. Uh, uh, again, it's a something that's been long waited for by I would say the majority of this country, and so uh, we welcomed it with some with some joy. Although at the same time, we recognize that. What the courts did was not to outlaw abortion because abortion is still legal in, uh, in this state and in many others. Uh, what the courts did was, uh, as, as others have noted, is to return the decision-making to the, to the people. Uh, the, uh, uh, even, you know, if we look back, even Ruth Ginsburg, who was pro-choice Supreme Court Justice who recently died, uh, was no fan of the legal reasoning behind Roe v. Wade. And many criticized the decision as justices legislating from the bench. What the Supreme Court did was, in fact, to say that they're no longer going to legislate from the bench because the, uh, uh, the people decide who their legislators are. And uh, through their legislators, the people can express their uh, their voice of what abortion policy should be. Can I ask you this, though, because I want to jump back into what you said earlier, that you, you said that the majority of Americans agree with this, but, you know, and, and I'm going to point to the Cath to Catholics in a moment here, but there was a, a Washington Post a poll on this. It said 60% of Americans support making abortions legal. Well, it depends on how you phrase the question and which polls you listen to. Uh, again, if you did a poll and say uh, the, Mary, uh, uh, the majority of Americans support uh, partial birth abortion, which was allowed under the, uh, the, the previous uh, understanding of Roe v. Wade, I would venture to say that a majority of Americans would be revolted by uh, the possibility and, the, uh, and what has happened too often of a child that was already in the birth canal being born could be killed by a, uh, a doctor. What, what were your conversations like this weekend? What, did, did, did this come up in mass? Were priests talking about this? Uh, well, uh, I wasn't at, uh, at many masses except the ones I, I celebrated myself. And, and uh, yes, we made some reference to it. And, uh, and again, what, uh, what what I uh, what I urge the priest is you know to preach on the gospel of the day and if it uh, if this came up or was uh, appropriate to mention to do so but to do so without uh, trying to spike the football as it were uh, because this is a, a a delicate question and we know that uh, you know people have some raw emotions uh, I think uh, uh, many of those emotions are are misplaced because as I said. Uh, you know, there's no reason to spike the football on the pro-life side because abortion continues to be to be legal. In fact, you know, where the, the biggest demonstrations against the decision were in states that uh, the decision will not uh, have any real effect on the lives of people because those states were pretty much uh, very, uh, very uh, uh, pro choice of pro-abortion yeah because like, it, New York, like Illinois like California etc because as, as we had pointed out that the decision basically now puts it to the states and some states have exactly. banned it other states have not I wanted to yeah. ask you about this 
because I want to know how many Catholics come to you and ask you this question. Uh, again, this is another poll that we found that showed that uh, a majority of Catholics disagree uh, that the church's positions on abortion, uh, the most recent, this is an Associated Press, showed 64% of Catholics support some abortion rights. And I'm just wondering, have you spoken with those folks? What, what are those conversations like? Well, I don't know who was interviewed in those polls. Uh, again, were, were, the, uh, were these self-identified Catholics? Were they identified or, or broken down as to their frequency of attending Mass on Sunday, which is basically the main identifier as a Catholic. It's a Catholic, a Catholic in good standing as a Catholic that goes to Mass on Sunday. Uh, and I've seen polls that indicate that Catholics who faithfully attend Mass uh, on Sundays uh, uh, are uh, reliably very pro-life in their opinions on on this issue. So, have you ever had um, have you ever had a Catholic who came up to you and said, "Oh, oh yeah, uh, I've had Catholics that said that uh, they disagree with me or disagree with the Church on any number of issues." Uh, the, 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 which, which is, I guess, fine. You can disagree, but uh, immorality uh, issues of morality are not is determined by popular vote. And, uh, and so, uh, you know, I always try to uh, convey to people that, you know, as members of the church, uh, we, we come to the church, we're all our sinners, but uh, as we walk in, uh, in the church, we, we attempt to uh, change our lives in accordance to the gospel. That's, that's the, our task, is to allow the gospel to change us it's not our job to change the gospel. Do you think that times have changed to the point where people feel, well, the church is not caught up with reality? And I'm wondering, you know, again, if you have those conversations, what's the message? To those I don't people? know. I, I, in the church, what's the reality that it hasn't caught up with? You know, in the in the first and second century uh, of the Christian era, uh, abortion was uh, quite common, and uh, the church was quite uh, vocal in its opposition to uh, to, uh, to abortion. In fact, the pagans that looked at the Christians uh, from afar noted that they were people that don't expose their children, that don't that don't kill uh, children in the womb. So, uh, church has consistently uh, preached against abortion, uh, and the, the reality of human sin has always been the same as well. So, so, so why do you, why is the church failing to 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 connect with those people. They say they're Catholic, you know, but they're not following complete Catholic. Yeah, there is a, yeah, there is a lot of cognitive dissonance among uh, people that uh, uh, that uh, say they're Catholic, uh, but uh, that, that uh, don't, uh, don't embrace the totality of Catholic teachings. But, you know, I think we have to get back to the point that, you know, we're not presenting this issue on abortion as a religious issue. This this is a this is a fact of science, a fact of biology. Uh, human life begins at conception, uh, and uh, that's not a religious belief or ideological construct like some gender theories are that are being presented today. Are this is biological fact, uh, scientific fact. Uh, that that, that uh, child at conception has the total DNA package that. He will have, she will have, if allowed to live to be 90 years old. I, I wanted to ask you this and get your response to this. 
we heard from a Gloria Romero Rosas, a Miami entrepreneur who's on the Florida board of the Organization of Catholics for Choice. This is what she said. I think the divergence comes down to what our faith and we that have grown up in the Catholic faith or have come to it have learned as the social justice tradition. It. it calls us to go above and beyond to okay. help those who are poor and the Catholic affordable okay. reproductive health care. Okay, hold on one second. My apologies. You didn't hear you didn't hear the, the what she was saying? No. Okay. She's basically mentioning that the church's social justice tradition on the issue of this uh, affordable reproductive health care is, is her basic argument. And so I'm just curious about the church's position on anti-abortion stance. Does it contradict this tradition of, you know, again, uh, you know, the woman's rights, but affordable reproductive health care? Your take on that. Well, first of all, Catholics for Choice is a sham organization. It's not a membership organization. It's an organization that's funded through agencies like Planned Parenthood, the Playboy Foundation, and others. It doesn't have any real constituencies, uh, and, and, and certainly doesn't have any uh, any standing to comment on Catholic teaching. Uh, let's be clear on that. And you know, Catholic uh, Church has has supported uh, health care for women, uh, and, and, but we, uh, we don't think that, uh, you know, that uh, fertility is a pathology, and, and certainly uh, uh, pregnancy is not a disease. Okay. Let me, so, it, abortion is not health care. Let me, let me, if I may, because I think we fixed the problem. I'm going to try to play it again for you, and I hope that you hear it, because I, I do want your response. Let's give it another shot. I think the divergence comes down to what our faith and we that have grown up in the Catholic faith or have come to it have learned as the social justice tradition. It calls us to go above and beyond to help those who are poor and at the margins of society, those that are struggling to access safe and affordable reproductive health care. Okay. Did you were you able to hear at that time? Sure. And uh, okay. you know, and the church the church has always taken care of the poor and we certainly have uh, advocated in this country uh, uh, health care for women and minorities and and people that are on the margins. That's what that's what we do. You know, a, 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 a one out of every six beds in this country uh, in a hospital is in a Catholic hospital. So our commitment to healthcare, our commitment to the health of women, our commitment to the poor is is, is clear. And uh, uh, so I don't know where they come up with with, with this type of thing. Uh, the church teaches the respect for human life in all its stages, from the beginning of conception till natural death, that's why we oppose uh, uh, euthanasia. That's why we advocate rights for immigrants, why we uh, advocate the end of the death penalty. These are all uh, Catholic positions from Catholic social teachings that are consistent also with our uh, teaching that uh, the most vulnerable human life should be protected. You know, what are the, right now the most vulnerable uh, human lives are those that are in the Forms of their mothers. Well, I think one of the things I, I took from what she said, though, is going back to those social justice traditions. 
that well, you may have situations where, for example, the woman may be in a position where she cannot raise the child or maybe she was molested, raped, attacked by someone. In situations like that, where does the church stand? So, uh, so uh, the church says that no one can do uh, evil so that good may come from it. So uh, we, uh, you know, this is this is a a, a basic uh, uh, principle of, of of Christian morality. The ends do not justify the means. So we cannot uh, choose evil means to promote good ends. And so, therefore. Uh, uh, to uh, to eliminate an innocent child for the good end of uh, protecting the reputation or the uh, or the convenience of the mother or uh, to uh, help her get through some type of a, of a trauma. Well, an evil end does not justify a good end does not justify an evil means. Does the church provide? Uh, any services helping women dealing with an unwanted pregnancy? Sure, sure. Uh, my own sister was in an unwed mother's home for a while, and that was over almost 50 years ago. So uh, we've been taking care of uh, women that have been pregnant uh, in difficult situations for, for, for years and years and years. Uh, we, we, in Hollywood, we have a pregnancy assistance center that was vandalized over the Memorial Day weekend. None of you press people wanted to give it much attention, but it was vandalized by some pro-choice group that used uh, uh, anarchist symbols and uh, Jane's Revenge or something that they painted on the walls. Uh, but this was a center that provides help to uh, women with difficult pregnancies, help for food, uh, rent, uh, counseling, etc. cetera. Uh, again, uh, the, the, the social work of the church is well known and has been, uh, uh, you know, there's nothing there that we have to apologize for. Let me come back to, again, Gloria Romero Roses, um, again, part of the Catholics for Choice. There's a church. The Catholics for Choice, as I re- remind you, is not a legitimate uh, well, that's, I mean, that's, that's the group that she's part of. I, 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 right, but it's not a legitimate membership or, or organization. With Okay, so this is uh, something that she said about the church's position on abortion and just, again, coming back to people's daily lives. Let's take a listen. Well, I think the lived experience of Catholics needs to be highlighted and spotlighted in this conversation. And so when we think about the people that we know and love in our homes, in our workplaces, there is somebody close to us that, you know, is a faithful believer and they've had abortions. I wanted to ask you on going off what she just said and this. We've seen several Catholic theologians like uh, Jesuit priest John Courtney Murray uh, have in the past conveyed that it's legitimate for Catholics to exercise their conscience and make the distinction between religious morality and legal consensus. What are your thoughts on that? What are your thoughts on, again, on the topic of abortion when it comes to this decision? Well, John Courtney Murray, who's been dead over 50 years, did not really write on abortion. He wrote on the uh, on on the role of citizenship and, uh, and religious freedom, and and, and certainly uh, I'd be interesting to know if he had lived to be in a 
post-world world what he would have said, but uh, I don't think you can really cite uh, John Courtney Murray in this argument. Uh, but uh, so I don't know, uh, you know, the point that you're trying to make. All right, let me let me let me finish it with this then, because only because of time. Earlier this year, we saw Archbishop uh, Salvatore J. Cordelion. I hope I'm saying his name right. He's of the Archdiocese of San Francisco. He announced that he was barring House Speaker Nancy Pelosi from receiving communion because of her support of abortion access. What are your thoughts on denying communion to any Catholic who is pro-choice? Well, I think it's a conversation that the that. Uh, that Catholic has to have with their pastor. And in San Francisco, the Archbishop, uh, you mentioned Archbishop Borioni, is the pastor of, of that particular Congresswoman. So that's a uh, question between him and her. And, uh, and I think that's, uh, you know, uh, anybody that wants to approach me, you know, I, you know, people like to call themselves practicing Catholics. Anybody can call themselves a practicing Catholic, and I have no argument with that, because I, as I tell people, this life is our one-time chance to practice the faith until we get it right. But a lot of Catholics, and even myself included, if, you know, we all have to learn that we need to practice a whole lot more. But those Catholics that identify themselves as pro-choice or pro-abortion certainly have to practice their faith a little bit more until they get it right. Because it's not right. Uh, abortion is no right. It's a wrong. And I'm going to have to end it on that note and give you the last word. Archbishop Wensky, I always appreciate the time. Thank you so much. God bless you. Again, he's Archbishop Thomas Wensky, the Miami Archdiocese. And you can find more of our coverage of this story again at WLRN.org. Well, still to come, kids experiencing homelessness have trouble accessing the basics, like underwear. One organization is helping. Welcome back to Sundial on WLRN. There are tens of thousands of youth in Florida who are experiencing homelessness. They're living with friends or other relatives, sometimes in a hotel, sometimes in a car. There are roughly 79,000 living in this situation. That's according to the Student Homelessness Report of 2020. Now, getting them food and shelter is important, but one thing that we may take for granted, something as simple as fresh, clean, new underwear. There's a group from Texas that's been expanding its reach to get kids experiencing homelessness in need of just new underwear. The group, a nonprofit called Undies for Everyone, is led by Rabbi Amy Cohen Weiss. For a couple of years now, they've expanded to many cities, including Miami. And Rabbi Weiss was recently honored as a CNN hero for helping distribute more than 2 million pairs in more than 16 cities. She joins us now. Rabbi Weiss, such a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Really appreciate your work. Uh, well, thank you for what you're doing. And I'm just, I have to ask, where did the idea come from? I, I know of all the things, right? <laughs> um, I was blogging for the Houston Chronicle and you're always looking for topics. A social worker mentioned to me um, at the end of 2008 that she she really wanted people to know that kids were not getting the basics that they need. Um, and I blogged about it, got, got a fair amount of response. So I decided that back to school would be a better time to 
giveaway underwear. So I started doing a drive each year. And then in 2012, made it into its own nonprofit and decided that that's really where my rabbit needed to be. Hmm. I learned this many years ago when I had volunteered at a group, uh, and this was in Nevada, helping homeless teens, teens who were experiencing mm-hmm. homelessness, and the just the importance of having new shoes or you know right. a new outfit for school. Didn't even think about underwear, but this is important for their for you know the, the child's behavior, their mental health. What what's the impact that you've learned from this? You know, putting all this together. What have you learned about just something as simple as that and how it can help a kid? So. Lewis, it's exactly what you said. It is, I never thought about that. So really when, when people ask what I do and I tell them they, about giving underserved kids underwear, they say, I never thought of that. So that's really the, where this huge gap is that, uh, look, on one hand, very fortunately, people know when they clean out their own drawers or their kids' closets and drawers, they know to uh, donate the clothes but throw away the underwear. Right. Um, but that and and the fact that new underwear is very expensive leaves no access for families whose kids need new underwear. And the parents often think, well, it's OK because you can't see the underwear. They'll be fine. But the truth is that one study showed that 55 percent of the kids interviewed said they were too embarrassed to go to school if they did not have um, underwear on. They were afraid of being found out. They were afraid of being bullied. It's impossible to concentrate on your studies or to be successful socially if you're worried that, you know, the person that you're trying to be friends with might find out that you don't have any underwear on. So there's a giant gap in what is provided for in the country. And Undies for Everyone is, as far as we know, the only nonprofit group exclusively serving children with the idea of helping them stay in school to build their confidence and self-esteem. Over the years, where have you found the greatest source of new underwear for children? Is it just donations or have you found, you know, that, that the corporate side has also been very open? So we buy hundreds of thousands of pairs of underwear because our buying power lowers the price dramatically. Mm. Um, um, we, we have uh, one donor that's been working with us since 2013 who makes character underwear and the kids love that. And, and we get about 160,000 pair that way. Um, but mostly we buy it. We do have an Amazon wish list that, um, that we post that lots of people like to do what we call virtual drives. Or, you know, they're the people who want to roll, pack, and deliver underwear. And they're the people who just want to buy the underwear and send it in. And then they're the people who know that we buy underwear for so little money that their cash goes really far. Mm. Again, I'm talking with Rabbi Amy Cohen-Weiss, a founder of the nonprofit Undies for Everyone. This is a group that's worked for more than a decade now to get new underwear to tens of thousands of young people in this country who are living with homelessness or just struggling for the basics. And again, they started in Houston, but now they're in dozens of cities, including Miami. And as I mentioned, Rabbi Weiss also honored as a CNN hero uh, recently for her work. And by the way, Rabbi, congratulations on that. Thank you. Um, You know, you expanded outside of Houston. 
How did you decide? Because the need is so great, so many places. How did you decide on where you were going to go, what those next cities would be? Well, you may you may make a very good point that that the the need is so great. We could go to literally any city, any town, any little community and give them underwear. But what we have tried to do is where we know people that can help us connect uh, with funders on the ground that we um, we go to those cities. So we're in 17 cities and. This is our third, our second or third year of serving serving Miami kids. So, four we'll give four thousand two hundred and twenty kids who are enrolled in the federally mandated homeless department hmm. in the Miami Dade schools. We'll give them each of them seven pair of underwear, and then two thousand five hundred and thirty two kids uh, working with child protective services will also get underwear. And beyond, and, and I think I'd read this, that it was after Hurricane Harvey that mm-hmm. you, your organization really just, I mean, you stepped up relief efforts uh, after natural disasters. Is that still something that you're, you, you're focused on, or is it still just the kids? So we, we did pivot with Harvey, and we gave away $2 million to men, women, and children. It was just this terrible year of Hurricane Har- Harvey and, as you know, Irma, mm-hmm. um, It was also the year of the California wildfires. So we just gave away lots of that underwear to everyone, but we really focused on children. But going forward from that, we decided when there is a a natural disaster on a large scale, we, we will provide underwear to the kids. Beyond that, is the organization doing anything? I mean, are you expanding to more cities soon or beyond just underwear? So I think we're going to stick with 17 cities for a while because Mm. we have 53 partners uh, around those 17 cities. We give to Boys and Girls Club and also to pediatric mobile clinics. Um, What we're trying to do is expand in each city to raise the awareness. That's why we're so grateful to be talking to you today that, you know, for instance, Mr. Les Alexander uh, of the Alexander Foundation has been has been funding undies for everyone and in a generous way and helping us reach more kids each year. Uh, and what we're trying to do is not just our regular distribution, it is also a program we call Undies for Change, where any local organization anywhere in the country, any company, uh, any religious organization, they can sponsor a packing. We send underwear and bags and stickers. We teach them how to roll it and pack it. So their volunteers take care of that. And then they deliver it to a local boys and girls club uh, that we've hooked them up with. So while we're not expanding our 17, out of our 17 cities with regular distribution, we are trying to get more companies and more organizations involved. Temple Sinai of North Dade is going to be rolling and packing undies uh, later in the year, early 2024, to take the Boys and Girls Club kids. And like I said, it, it, you know, it, the thing that hit me again was just the fact that we take for granted these little basic things, you know, yes, we do. underwear, socks, like so for granted. What did it mean for you to be recognized? as a CNN hero? Uh, 
super embarrassing first. <laughs> um, second, I, uh, you know, I'm, I'm sad that my folks are gone and, and weren't here to see it. But uh, the, the biggest thing is that it is bringing attention to this really overlooked, completely overlooked issue and um, giving us the opportunity to tell people about it and get more kids more underwear. That's the part that excites me the most. I mean, you kind of touched on this a second ago, but I just, you know, I want to know like overall big, big picture. Mm -hmm. What do you want to, you know, where do you want to take this? Everywhere, not overseas. I, I, I don't, I think where we are right now, it's hard to do overseas and the shipping costs, of course, are getting much larger, but we really want to see um, underwear in every place that we can get it. And as long as we have help from people and funding, we want to make it as big as we possibly can, because that just means we get to help more children. And they're super grateful. We don't follow children. We never take a picture. We don't interview them. We don't interview their families. If we're giving them underwear for dignity purposes, it doesn't make sense to, to take their picture getting a bag of underwear, right? But we know from anecdotes from the homeless department directors and the CPS social workers that these kids are very, very happy to get the underwear and grateful. And the, and the parents, if parents are involved, they are equally as grateful to save that those funds that they can now spend on food or rent. It makes a huge, huge difference. Rabbi Weiss, it thank does. you so, so much for sharing these stories with us, but also for what you're doing. Beautiful work. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks for having me. They can go to undiesforeveryone.org and check us out. Definitely. And we'll share that, by the way, on our social media, WLRN Sundas, so you can learn more about what they're doing and how to help. Rabbi Weiss, have a great one. Thanks. You too, Louis. Again, read by Amy Cohen-Weiss, founder of the nonprofit Undies for Everyone. Well, that's our program for this Monday, June 27th, 2022. Katie Munoz is our lead producer. Leslie Ovai is our producer and social media editor. Our engagement editor is Katie Lepre-Cohen. Our news director is Terrence Shepard. Alicia Zuckerman is our editorial director. And Jessica Bakeman is our senior news editor. WLRN's interim program director and technical supervisor is Peter J. Meritz. The music for the program by the Miami Afro-Cuban funk band Balo at GoBalo.com. Coming up tomorrow on the show, a uh, park is being designed underneath the I-395. You might have seen it. You've probably driven through it. Under the new construction bridge, the park is supposed to connect downtown and overtown. We're going to talk with the members of the community building that. Coming up tomorrow on the show, I'm Luis Hernandez. Thanks so much for listening. Stay safe. Take care of each other. The program is made possible in part by support from Miami Cancer Institute. WLRN Public Media.